I love this time of the year. I always have. I love everything about it. I love the uh, beautiful decorations that we have here at First Alliance, and I want to just thank Crystal Kelgren and her her team for what they've done to make this place so lovely. Uh, I especially like the positioning of the cross beneath the manger in back of us. And uh, I, I don't look forward at all to when this all comes down, but it has to, and uh, we'll endure that, I'm sure, when the time comes. But I'm very grateful for it. I, I enjoy the decorations at our home as well. Uh, my part is to... Uh, help haul the stuff out of the attic and from the basement, and then Ruth pretty much takes it from there. Uh, trust me, if she didn't do that, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't get done. Uh, my part, however, is to wrap the presents. Uh, I wrap them all but one, and I, I think Ruth is still looking for a way to get me to wrap that one as well, but uh, so far she hasn't succeeded. I also love the special times that we have as a family at Christmas, and I'm so blessed that uh, that our children and their spouses and our grandchildren are all with us for this time. We had a blessed time this Christmas, and I know we will until uh, they make their way out of here. And our place is going to feel all too empty and far too quiet uh, when that time comes. And I love the special occasions for worship that we enjoy together as a church family. Uh, Kicked off so beautifully by the ministry of our worship choir a few weeks ago. Uh, followed by uh, the thoughtfully planned Advent worship services and Pastor Ben's ministry on Christmas Eve. And then in just a few days, as Pastor John mentioned, we're going to gather together once more for our traditional come-and-go communion service. And if you've never attended that service, I want to add my invitation to his to encourage you to come. It's an opportunity for our pastors and a few of our elders to share some sacred, intimate moments with you and your family or friends centered around the Lord's table. One of the questions that I typically ask those who I meet with is this. I ask, what are you asking God for in the year ahead? Uh, What would you like him to do in your life or in the life of our church? If I were asked that question, my answer would be that I'm asking the Lord to teach me to pray. I, I have so much to learn about prayer, the discipline of prayer, and it is a discipline. Most of us know that uh, the first of our eight core values at First Alliance is what? A few of you know. Uh, Prayer is our first work. But I guess my question is, is it really? Is it really our first work? I wonder if a close scrutiny of my calendar and your calendar would bear that out, that prayer is our first work. Uh, The sad statistics are that the average Christian in our country spends less than four minutes a day in prayer. And the average pastor is not a whole lot better, uh, less than eight. And if you remember uh, perhaps my message during our series on margin, that compares with an average daily consumption of four hours of television. So the average Christian watches 60 times per day of television the time that he invests in prayer. Why is it that we spend so little time in in prayer when we claim that it is so central to our relationship with Christ? Coupled with reading God's Word, prayer is the lifeline of our relationship with Him. Listen to what Phil Migliorati writes in his blog, The Praying Pastor. It may sound a little harsh, but I think he's spot on. He writes, I believe we do, not, we do not allocate much time to prayer because we don't want to, 
because we feel we don't feel that we need to, and fundamentally we because we doubt the value of doing so. It's not that we are too busy to pray, it's that we value other efforts and strategies more highly than the call to prayer. This is a heart issue that each of us must resolve with the Lord at the deepest levels of our souls. I must admit that there are times when I attempt to steal away into my own prayer closet, when I feel like I'm just going through the motions, just saying the words, like, like my prayers aren't going any further than the ceiling and connecting with God at all. No doubt I'm talking to others who have that same struggle from time to time. Am I right? I hope so, that I'm not the only one here. I, for one, am asking that God would, in the year ahead, teach me to pray. Uh, not as a New Year's resolution, they never work for me, uh, but that I may grow in the grace of spending time with my Heavenly Father, that I may be a greater blessing to Him, that my prayers will be more greatly impactful upon His work, His work in the lives of my family and my friends, in our church and in His work around the world. Jesus was without doubt the best storyteller ever. He used stories in a way to help his listeners understand what he was really trying to communicate. He taught an important lesson, I, I believe, uh, or he never taught an important lesson without illustrating it in some way with a story, such as what we find here in response to, to the disciples asking him, Lord, teach us to pray. In doing so, he used two stories that Pastor John read for us a few moments ago, which serve as the, uh, as the basis for our study this morning. Jesus used stories to take his listeners from what they knew to what they needed to know, to make clear the truth of God's Word so that his listeners could make sense of it and apply it to their own lives. Jesus knows that one of the greatest hurdles in our praying is the problem of, dis of discouragement that we have prayed for what seems like an eternity, and it appears as if God has not heard us. And so he tells us these two stories to keep us from losing heart. By studying them, we can gain some principles in praying that keep us from discouragement. We'll look first at the circumstances in each, in each of the stories, then the conflicts that are found in each one of them, and thirdly, the challenges that they pose for us. And then lastly... We want to look at one more major reason why we do not pray as we should. Perhaps the number one stumbling block that hinders God's children from developing an intimate relationship with Him. Well, the circumstances in both of these stories are very similar. In the first one, a man. In the second, a woman. Are at the ends of their respective ropes, facing situations that they cannot handle without some outside help. The first one tells us of a man who, who has unexpected company drop in on him. Now, no doubt many of you have had company over Christmas. I hope they didn't just appear at your doorstep and ask for a bed without you knowing that they were coming. Uh, but that's what this man had happened. makes me re recall to mind a time when we were living in South Dakota when one of Ruth's cousins passed through and stopped by for a visit. Since we weren't at home at the time, he uh, thought he would leave us a note on the door telling us that he'd been there, that he was sorry that he missed us, and, and so forth. 
Now, you've got to know something about this guy to understand what he did, because when I say he left the note on the door, he left it on the door. Uh, a long, scrawling, ballpoint pen all over our white door. And uh, that's a story for another time, but if you, if you met him, you'd, you'd understand. <clears throat> well, this, uh, this, this gentleman had company who came at midnight. To make matters worse, the pantry was empty. And so because the local convenience store was closed, he goes next door and he bangs on his neighbor's door and he's asking for food. Well, the guy next door is asleep with his family. And the neighbor says, hey, I've locked the door. The kids and I are in bed. There's no way I'm getting up to give you anything. Just go away. Leave me alone. But he bangs on the door and bangs on the door. And because of his persistence, the neighbor gets out of bed and gives him the bread that he requested. Well, like the man in this story, the woman in the second was likewise in need, one which she could not meet. But she knew where to go for help. She was apparently being harassed by someone, <clears throat> perhaps a creditor we don't really know, being harassed by someone, and she needed legal help, legal protection. And despite the reputation of the town judge, who had no respect for God and no compassion for people, this dear widow went after him and didn't back down until finally, to spare himself a breakdown, the judge gave her the protection that she requested. But I want you to notice the, the link between these two stories. The man's sleepy neighbor didn't answer the door after the first knock, and the reluctant judge didn't provide protection for the woman on her first request. But the man kept knocking and the woman kept seeking until finally, the neighbor and the judge responded to their pleadings. So what can we learn from these two stories that Jesus tells? First of all, I think we need to see that we will only become persistent in prayer when we become absolutely convinced of our inadequacy and God's sufficiency, of our inability and God's omnipotence, of our ignorance and God's wisdom. I think this is perhaps the most difficult part of prayer. It is for me. No doubt for many of you as well. Let me share with you why I think that is. We live in a culture that proclaims a message that is the antithesis of the gospel. That we don't need God because we are gods unto ourselves. It's communicated both in subtle and not so subtle ways. From the media, in the marketplace, in our schools. And sad to say, it can be found even in some of our churches. And as a result, the message, the message that we hear when we're facing a dilemma is this. You don't need to talk to God about this one. You can handle this one on your own. Now, it sounds rather foolish. And yet, I wonder if that describes the way that we live more than we realize. Ask yourself this question. Based upon the fervency and frequency of my prayers, am I declaring my dependence upon God or my independence from God? Consider the following. If you are a married person, and many of us in this room are, are you praying about your marriage and asking God to help you love and serve your spouse as you should? Or do you believe that you can build your marriage without him? If you are a parent, and many of us are, are you praying for your children and asking God for the strength to be the example to them that you need to be? 
Or do you think you can raise your children without him? Are you praying about your priorities that they may be honoring to God? Or do you believe that you can set them without him? And are you praying about the health and the future of our church? Or do you believe that we can make it strong without him? I think you get the picture. Think of any major area in your life, even a minor area if they in fact exist. If you are not bringing them before the Lord in prayer, you are in effect declaring your independence from God rather than affirming your dependence upon him. Whenever we leave God out of the equation and go it alone, we're not only displaying our arrogance and our foolishness, but we are robbing ourselves of the greatest resource we could ever tap, the perfect love and care and wisdom of Almighty God. Bill Hybels is the pastor of the Willow Creek Church outside of Chicago. He's written a book entitled, Too Busy Not to Pray, in which he says, As the pastor of a large congregation, I knew a lot more about prayer than I practiced in my own life. That's no doubt true for others of us who don't pastor big churches. Later in the book, Hybels writes, It is hard for God to release his power in your life when you put your hand in your pocket and say, I can handle this on my own. If you do that, don't be surprised if one day the tide of the battle shifts against you and you are powerless to do anything about it. No doubt there have been times in your life when you have readily admitted and confessed your desperate need for God. But make no mistake, there is never a time when we need him any less than we do another whether we recognize it or not, we are always desperately in need of him. And if we live in that realization, we will be persistent in prayer. But the moment we think we can make it on our own is when prayer slips away from its rightful place and priority in our lives. Well, looking once more at these two stories, at first pass, one might conclude that since the answers to the neighbor's prayer and the widow's prayer are delayed and don't come without much cajoling and pleading, it must follow that prayer is the means by which you and I overcome God's resistance to grant us our requests, and that deep down God doesn't want to grant them, but that we can convince him otherwise if we plead long enough and hard enough. But friends, that's not what Jesus is communicating in these verses. What I believe he is showing us is this, that prayer is oftentimes an agonizing act of the will. Consider his own life. We read in Hebrews 5, 7, that in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. We see this particularly during the lonely hours he spent in Gethsemane leading up to his crucifixion. The scripture says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Where is there conflict in prayer? We find it first between our human limitations and God's power within us. Scripture reminds us that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the greatest conflict, I believe, in prayer lies in our opposition, which doesn't come from mere human beings, but it comes from the forces of darkness, 
the forces of Satan himself. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes that conflict for what it is, spiritual warfare. In verses 10 through 13, we we read these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Effectual prayer, my friend, is not passive. In many ways, it's the hardest work we do. That's the way I find it. Prayer is the wrestling mat on which we struggle with the deepest issues of life. Beloved Christian author Oswald Chambers wrote, If your heart is right with God and he delays the answer to your prayers, don't misjudge him as an unkind friend or an unjust judge. Just keep at it. Your prayers will certainly be answered. Pray and don't cave in. Your Heavenly Father will explain it all to you one day. But through your praying, he will make you into the kind of person that he can trust with the answers to your prayers. Think again about that last thought. I think that that helps me to know why God seems to delay his answers to my prayers. That he wants to make me into the kind of a person that he can trust with the answers to those prayers. Sometimes that takes a while. Notice now the challenges in these two stories. Even Christians who have been walking with God for many years will will, uh, admit that prayer is a challenging work. Sometimes it can seem pointless, useless, or fruitless. Again, I turn to Oswald Chambers, who has written so much on the subject of prayer. And what I'm about to read may sound somewhat heretical, but stay with him. Hear him out. Chambers writes, prayer to us is not practical, it is stupid. And until we see that prayer is stupid, from the ordinary common sense point of view, we will not pray. It is absurd to the human mind to consider that Almighty God is going to alter things in answer to my prayers. But that is what Jesus said he will do. Absolutely amazing, my friend, that Almighty God will listen to our prayers and will alter what he wants to do based upon our praying to him. Praise his name. Some time ago, when a Christian young woman shared a concern with me, I encouraged her to talk to the Lord about it. I assured her that uh, if she did, that he would help her with it when she asked him. Reared in a Christian home all of her life, her response was, well, that's what they say. No, that's not what they say. That's what God says. He said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. No doubt you have received many Christmas letters from your friends around the country. I don't know if you read all of them or not. Uh, Hopefully for their sake you you do. Maybe you write one of them. I don't know. I write one of them. Uh, But I appreciated the honesty of some friends who sent us their annual letter that we received this past week. And in that letter they said this. This year seemed to go along a bit easier than the last couple of years. 
It was mostly a matter of seeing God's faithfulness, even when we didn't see our prayers answered when we thought they should be. God must be so amused at us, thinking we know how to handle situations better than he. We tend to judge the value of prayer on what we can see happening immediately, don't we? But prayer is a matter of faith, taking God at his word, believing his promise that if we pray, he will work. And we must keep on praying, even when we can't see what he's doing. I think if these two stories teach us anything, it's that regardless of what we see going on outwardly, we need to keep coming back to God with our requests. By praying to him, we we show that we have committed ourselves to him and that even though his actions are hidden from our view, we will continue to seek him and to trust him. So what's the takeaway from these, these two stories? I believe it's this. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. Keep on praying even when you can't see what God is up to. Believe that he is quietly and mightily at work behind the scenes on your behalf, on behalf of those for whom you are praying. If we stop praying, we short-circuit the process because God has designed this world to operate on prayer. He cannot work as he desires to if we do not pray as we ought. Well, then I also want to share with you what I believe is the number one reason why most Christians do not seek out their Heavenly Father as they should. And that is because we underestimate our Heavenly Father's love for us and his desire to bless and to answer us. In the model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, which we have called the Lord's Prayer, he taught them to pray to their Father in heaven. Praying to God as Father doesn't seem out of the ordinary to us, but it was revolutionary in Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, God was addressed as Father only seven times, each time when the nation of Israel came before him. But the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, and and the others, they never dared to address God in such a personal, intimate way. Yet in the New Testament, we are instructed more than 275 times to address God as Father. How incredible to realize that we can talk to the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting, and we are to call him Father. For some of us, as we think of God as our Father, we think of such virtues as love, acceptance, security, and guidance, because that's what we experienced from our human fathers. For others of us, however, it's a painful stretch to call God Father. Some of us have not had positive relationships with our dads. Maybe they were alcoholics or abusive. Perhaps they were absent altogether. Still others have experienced a parent who may have been present, but was emotionally distant, unreliable, or unrealistic in his or her expectations. Listen to this excerpt from Distorted Images of God by Dale Ryan. Children have a tremendous need for approval from their parents. They want their parents to be pleased with them. When a child is unable to win their approval, he takes in negative messages not only about himself, but about God. 
The result may be that God is seen as one who is never pleased. His standards are impossible, his expectations unattainable, and his love beyond reach. The image of God that is created in this way is described vividly by David Siemens as he writes, God is seen as a figure at the top of a tall ladder. The individual says to himself, I'm going to climb up to God now. I'm his child and I want to please him more than I want anything else. So he starts climbing, rung by rung, working so hard that his knuckles and shins begin to bleed. Finally, he reaches the top, only to find that God has moved a few rungs higher. So he determines to try a little harder. But each time he nears the top, God has moved higher still. And God becomes that inner discouraging voice that says, that's not quite good enough. Because of the experiences that we may have had with our parents, particularly our fathers, we may see God through distorted lenses, resulting in our inability to talk honestly with him, to share our feelings with him, or to trust him, or even to want to be around him. If that describes you this morning, my friend, even a little bit, I want to encourage you as best I know how to embrace a truer picture of who God is and discard that distorted one modeled for you by your parents. Modeled for you by your parents. Based on what you know to be true about God, that he is gracious and merciful, the perfect parent, a loving father, the one who takes great delight in his children. Listen to these reminders of our Heavenly Father's love and care for you. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The prophet Zephaniah wrote, Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Never again will you fear any harm, for the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And the psalmist wrote, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Years ago, when our children were young, David about 10 and Rachel 7, our family visited my dad in Chicago. My dad loved the Windy City, and he loved showing it to us. And one day he, he led us to uh, a subway station where, where we were to catch the L. It's short for elevated. Uh, because of the crush of people around us, uh, Dad gave us this instruction in case uh, we all couldn't fit on the first train. He said, get off at the second stop in daylight, and we'll all meet up there together. Well, when the train arrived, steam swirling all around, I had Rachel by the hand as we squeezed through the door together, the only two from our family to make it. As the train lurched forward and we stood together in that crowded, smelly car, my view was fine for obvious reasons. 
Uh, but Rachel's was limited to the hip pockets of the man standing in front of us and a big woman's purse. Or a woman's big purse would sound a, a little better. <laughs> anyway. I don't recall which one it was exactly, but, but there was a purse there. But as, as Rachel looked up at me, I could see that she was content as her little hand gripped mine, just as I was content in the comfort of my father's instructions. And it wasn't long until we were all together again at that second stop in daylight. We have a heavenly father who takes better care of us than any earthly father ever could. He is the perfect parent. He is the perfect parent in every way. And there is no security quite like what he provides as he holds us in his strong and caring hand. And what's more, he delights in our coming to him. He delights in our worshiping him. He delights in our telling him our struggles. And he delights in our trusting him to answer our prayers. Many of you have no doubt read Frank Peretti's novel, This Present Darkness. It's a story about a village over which angels and demons wage war for control. What's worth noting is that the outcome of that battle lay in the hands of a few people in the church. As they prayed for their town, the power of the angelic forces increased, but when they failed to pray, the forces of evil prevailed. Whether or not we agree with the theology of this novel, and it is only that, a novel, one truth is clearly communicated and that is our praying, or our lack of praying, makes a difference. I don't know what outcomes that God wants to bring about as a result of my prayers in the coming year. But I know I have a God who is eager for me to talk with him. And I don't want to, dis- I don't want to disappoint him. In the old gospel song, Albert Simpson writes, wrote these words, Teach me to pray, Lord. Teach me to pray. This is my heart cry day unto day. I long to know thy will and thy way. Teach me to pray, Lord. Teach me to pray. Power in prayer, Lord. Power in prayer. Hear mid-earth sin and sorrow and care. Men lost and dying. Souls in despair. Oh, give me power. Power in prayer. Living in thee, Lord, and thou in me. Constant abiding. This is my plea. Grant me thy power, boundless and free, power with men and power with thee. Lord, teach me to pray. From time to time, we open this altar for those wishing to pray. To pray about whatever God might lay upon their hearts. And we open it this morning. If you want to come and pray for your family, or to pray for your own walk with God, or to pray for our church, to pray for our New pastor Mark Harris and his wife were coming in a couple of weeks. Whatever you want to pray about, know that the Lord God is eager to hear from you. You need not come here to pray, but if you want to, you certainly are invited to do that. Even as we're led in the song, I answer the call.